Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast, episode 16. Hello, I am your brain. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome to Fusion Health Radio. Thanks for coming back if you've been here before. And hello, thanks for showing up if this is your first time here. I'm Anthony Santa in studio with Dr. Michael Smith. And Dr. Michael Smith, for the sake of those people who haven't been here before, uh, give us an introduction. Who are you and what do you know? So I practice integrative medicine by combining the leading edge sciences of functional medicine and nutritional medicine with the vast experience and wisdom of traditional Chinese medicine. This is my 20th year of practice which is <laughs> makes me feel pretty old all of a sudden. Uh, so that's me as a doctor. As a patient, I have Crohn's disease, colitis, and COPD. COPD is the kind of thing that, uh, as I've experienced it with Michael, you may hear it too, listener, from time to time. Michael has a tendency to clear his throat. Yep. Every once in a while, I just have to <clears throat> move some stuff around. Yeah. Uh, not that that's a bad thing. Um, it's just Michael taking care of himself, <laughs> which is, guess, I guess, the whole uh, basis of why we're here today to talk. Uh, today's podcast, uh, Hello, I Am Your Brain. Um, Michael, we talked about this whole idea of doing a sort of brain series and talking about that sort of thing. What is it that, about uh, the brain that's so fascinating that you want to do a podcast about it today? Well, honestly, um, about a year ago, I had a pretty big flare-up of Crohn's disease and colitis. And uh, first time in 20 years, actually, that it even was a sort of a blip on the radar of my health and my life. There's this um, measurement we use in medicine called your CRP, C-reactive protein. And uh, when I was sort of at the height of the whole flare-up, my CRP was uh, 135. And typically anything in a kind of around, you know, 8, 9, 10 is considered like a warning for things that are in trouble. So uh, I was basically melting from the inside out with inflammation. Wow. After I got the blood test, of course, I was like, oh, my God, that explains everything because I had started noticing, you know, weird fatigue and weird, uh, you know, brain fog and poor memory. Like, I mean, I basically make a living being an encyclopedia in a way. <laughs> and I was like, my vocabulary started to go away. And I was just sitting here in my clinic going, okay, I better get on this and uh, did all of the things that I would do for someone in that condition. So I started doing all this research. And uh, there was a book I've had on my shelf for uh, years. It's called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by uh, Robert Sapolsky, who's now one of my heroes. <laughs> and I thought, oh, you know, it's another book on adrenal health. All the, you know, I've read all that stuff before and I just grabbed it and went through it. And I was like, wow, this guy's an amazingly gifted dude. So hang on, just looking at your bookshelf and all of a sudden this book popped out. It didn't even say anything about brain in the title. I know, but I, I'd flipped through it before and I knew it was the okay. guy's a neurologist and he does all this research all over the world and stuff. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get into this guy's book. And then, um, I got into this other book called Why Isn't My Brain Working by Datis Karazian, which is just like this, I mean, it's giant, enormous, thick book. I think it's like 700 pages long. And then I got that on my phone as an audio book, so I could just listen to it because there's a lot of going on. And I guess at the time my brain was still on fire, so it was taking a while for it all to, to gel together. And then I got another book by a guy named uh, David Perlmutter, who's also one of my heroes now because he's, you know, he's a neurologist who's uh, focusing primarily on gut health to heal the brain. So while I was doing everything I could, you know, in terms of my self-care, I also just wanted to figure out, well, what am I missing about the brain? And 
that took about three months to go through all that information to the point where I really kind of owned it in the sense of being able to apply it clinically. And as it always happens to me, and if you're a clinician, maybe it happens to you, um, as soon as I get into something new, people just start showing up with that kind of thing. So all of a sudden I have all these weird neurology things coming into my clinic and I'm like, wow, I would have never, you know, over the last 20 years ever have picked that up as a neurological thing because, you know, typically it's going to be a functional medicine thing here, a Chinese medicine diagnosis or whatever that I'm working with. But I was like, I love the brain. There's so many things that I can be more accurate at helping people with now because I can catch stuff. So it occurred to me that, um, you know, doing this podcast, it would be really interesting to just walk people through what basically your brain really is. Maybe in another podcast, we'll get into really what goes wrong. And I want to do a series so we can kind of just look at it uh, in an overview and then go deep into, I guess, what goes wrong and, you know, how to take care of it and stuff like that. And it's a big subject, but I just recently just, I fell in love with the brain, Anthony. It sounds like you fell in love with your own brain. Well, I mean, I help a lot of people way more accurately than, the, than I could before. So Sure. So I'm curious, you, you mentioned that this sort of uh, self-diagnosis uh, of yours uh, prompted you to sort of look inwards in between your ears and see what all that gray stuff is doing and what it's not doing. Um, is this whole process where you um, discovered, I guess, what was wrong with uh, your health in your brain? I mean... What am I trying to say? Brain health to me seems kind of like a, a weird word. Up until now with this weird phrase, rather, up until now in this podcast, we've been talking about stuff that I'm familiar with, my guts and my muscles and my body. You know, I don't usually think about my brain as being something that actually needs to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just seems kind of weird to be talking about brain health as opposed, you know, as something that I can actively take care of. I mean, I've had my own experiences with uh brain fog and food sensitivities and that sort of thing and how it actually affects me similar to you where you said you just you know your brain your brain came unplugged and you realized hey wait a minute <laughs> i think i tripped over the cord here what's going on <laughs> um I, I i guess what i'm looking for is how did you manage to actually fix whatever was going on there so i started making a lot of golden milk and what i would call a high potency or maybe a medical grade version of that actually there's a recipe for that on my website and it's a combination of Ayurvedic uh, herbs and spices that actually makes the curcumin, uh, which is an anti-inflammatory and turmeric, about 2,000 times more bioavailable because of the mixture of the herbs. And then if you emulsify it, which I did, which means you stir it into oil for a, a long time, that I think makes it four times more. So now we're like 8,000 times more bioavailable, which that made a huge difference. And then I started mixing in CBD oil, which is a non-psychoactive cannabinoid or alkaloid that comes from cannabis. And I would say within three weeks, I went from, oh my God, I think I have Alzheimer's disease to, oh, I'm an encyclopedia again. (laughs) Your brain came back online. Yeah. Neat. So it sounds like, so just based on conversations we had in the past, you just got rid of the inflammation. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was obviously also diet, acupuncture, herbs, all kinds of other stuff. But when I actually went like to the most high potency way of getting an anti-inflammatory in my brain. That's when I was for sure going, Oh, that, that turned the light back on. Huh. Very cool. And, uh, it's interesting to note that that was a, I guess, a nutritional fix. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily anything pharma, pharmacological or nope. is it, what, what, what is the word? Pharma? <laughs> well, we're calling the Western doctors, pharmaceutical doctors. That's now. the word I'm looking for. <laughs> got, I got to brand that little TM. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There, dear listener, I'm not making words up. Michael is. <laughs> cool. So 
um, we're here today talking about brain, brain health. What should we know about our brain uh, that is important? I mean, if I just get up and I do my daily thing and I get around town and I do whatever it is, I don't normally think about my brain being something that I actually need to fix or not. So I'm still trying to understand what it is you're actually talking about when it comes to brain health. Well, I think if I was to talk about brain health, the first thing I would just ask anyone to do is say, let's just expand the definition of your brain in the sense that it's not just the cholesterol, fat, and protein that's between your ears. Um, every other system in your body is going to basically affect your brain. So in my humble opinion, uh, when you think brain health, you have to think of every other system involved that's going to directly impact the the health and function of your brain. Okay. So I think before I get into all those other systems, it might be a good idea to just sort of bring people's attention into the kind of the inside of the inside of your brain for a bit to just um, familiarize ourselves with the, I mean, the real action movie part of your brain, what, what has to happen. And um, then we'll have the terminology to basically respect why all these other systems are innately necessary for your brain health to work really well. So as I like to do in the, uh, our little podcast is trying to get people to do something animate so you can see it because on radio, it's all between the ears. Basically, I hope your imagination is keeping up with mine. So <laughs> if you were to take both of your hands and make loose fists in front of your body, because that's sort of the beginning of the imagery, this is going to be where one neuron meets another neuron. And the space between the neurons is called a synaptic cleft. So you have an impulse basically going from, if I'm going to stay from my right elbow to my right fist, and that's going to create the neuron of my right arm to secrete neuropeptides and, you know, other things. And then they're going to communicate with the neuron, which is now my left arm. And that signal is going to go from my left fist to my left elbow and on, on down the chain as uh, neuropathways work. So that's sort of the basic picture. Now, if I was to take my two hands and open them up, uh, so now I've just got my, you know, hands held kind of spread out. If I was to pick any one of my fingers and decides that finger on my right hand represents the secretion of a specific neurotransmitter, it could be serotonin, dopamine, all kinds of things. And it's going to basically go from, I'm going to take my right index finger and fit it into the space between my left index finger and middle finger. And that's basically the neurotransmitter going into a receptor site on another neuron. So that's just a little bit closer in on, on, on the process. So it's a, uh, I don't know, I think of it like the social media of your brain. You know, you have a, a neurotransmitter, it goes from one uh, neuron through the synaptic cleft into the other neuron, and then that gets shared and liked by all the other neurons down that neural pathway, and then, you know, the idea or the punchline of the joke you're trying to remember or whatever, you know, the mind is actually doing, uh, the whole sequence of events from be beginning to uh, completion of function actually happens. So it sounds like it's a it's a pretty basic bit of mechanics. This little neuron needs to connect to that little neuron over there and... Mm -hmm. There's specifics about how that actually all happens. Yeah, and actually that, that imagery, hopefully everyone's who's listening has kind of got that still up there in the front of your brain. Because <laughs> this is where everything goes wrong in the sense of what happens inside your brain. Okay. So in order to produce uh, any one of those neurotransmitters, your body has to have a base um, substrate so for, say, uh, serotonin, the substrate is tryptophan. So if for whatever reason you're not getting enough tryptophan in your diet or through your blood-brain barrier or your liver's not taking tryptophan and turning it into another uh, precursor, then you're not going to have enough of the substrate to actually make the neurotransmitter in the synaptic cleft. 
So, I mean, you're just basically missing the, the money in the bank of that particular neurotransmitter. Now, that's one thing that goes wrong, and it's not actually very common that that's what goes wrong, because especially in the Western world, we all have more than enough food almost all the time. And hopefully we're eating enough real food to uh, make sure we have enough of those substrates. And then you have to take that substrate and turn it from, say, tryptophan into another molecule and then another molecule, and that takes a lot of what are called cofactors. Say, for example, with that would be like B12, oxygen, uh, zinc, um, something called P5P and, you know, all these other things that actually are, you know, necessary to just sort of, I don't know, for some reason I'm thinking of uh, taking your car to the shop and getting it all detailed or something like that. So we take this humble little tryptophan molecule and we do all this fancy stuff to it and ta-da, now it's serotonin. But if you don't have all of the guys in the auto shop doing their job, all the cofactors, then it's going to keep looking like tryptophan. So that's another thing that's very common uh, that goes wrong is actually the lack of cofactors in abundance to just manufacture the neurotransmitters. Now, again, if we've got our hands up, uh, we have our little finger going into the space between two other fingers or the peptide going into the receptor site. Sometimes receptor sites get blocked by mimicking molecules uh, or even just offending molecules like uh, heavy metals, uh, yeah, all kinds of environmental toxins, basically. So here's we've gone through all the work and the, the substrates and the cofactors to make some serotonin. We've heroically secreted it from one neuron and then bonk, the door is locked or crowded or, you know, stuck because something else is in the, the receptor site, stopping it from being able to to do its thing. So that, that can happen. So if we keep the imagery of uh, the, you know, two neurons and lots of stuff happening in between them, another thing that happens inside the synaptic cleft is uh, you have enzymes that clear the neurotransmitter out if there's too many of them. So if you have um, too much of the enzymes, then it'll clear the, the neurotransmitter too fast. If you don't have enough of those enzymes, then it won't clear fast enough, and then you're going to have all this congestion. And that can actually create the condition where the receptor's site uh, actually becomes resistant to the message because it's kind of like too much crowding. You know, there's a big, big lineup at the door, the bouncer standing there, and no one else gets to come in because <clears throat> the dance club is full. Something. Trying, trying to <laughs> help me out with the imagery, man. <laughs> no, that, that was a good one. <laughs> um, and then there's this other thing that's super, super tricky, but... Um, if we were to zoom in even closer to the point at which the neurotransmitter, um, it's kind of like being born, like babies are born. So it's coming through the, you know, womb into the vaginal canal and it's just ready to poke its little head out. And then there's this thing that's called threshold tolerance. Um, basically there's like a bioelectric um, called a field or potential that's happening around the birth canal. And it can get uh, sort of stubborn in a way where the typical amount of force to basically hatch the neurotransmitter isn't sufficient. And then it just doesn't, it isn't born through the actual neuron because the potential threshold is uh, become kind of uh, stubborn, if you will. And then the opposite can happen where the threshold potential is super, super sensitive. So, you know, <laughs> this is probably the wrong imagery, but, you know, you, you, you sort of sneeze and you give birth to a baby. <laughs> it just fell out. <laughs> so the, the, the neurotransmitters come out way, way too easily. And again, this uh, just creates the condition where it becomes too crowded. And uh, or sometimes that, that's not going to happen in the sense of crowding. It just means the you're going to have an overexcited um, brain because the neurotransmitters are moving way too quickly and way too easily. So I know that's a lot to kind of hold in your head, but that's your head. <laughs> so there's a lot of um, 
a lot of different things inside your skull, in and around your brain, all complicated little processes, um, things happening here and there. And um, I, I guess I'm just still, um, am I confused? Am I uh, bewildered that that's actually something that uh, that I can actually affect? Like what other, when I, when I think about things that's go, that goes on in between my ears and around my health and that sort of stuff, I don't usually equate that with any other thing that's actually going on in my body. But I know that's not true. Because I've heard you talk about how uh, gut health affects brain and that sort of thing. Is there um, more that you can say about how um, how that actually manifests, how that actually works? Um, I mean, that's what we're going to go through step by step for sure. So we have a, a structure in the brain called glial cells. And um, they used to be thought of as kind of the cement of your brain or these sort of useless building blocks that... Um, if they were like a stack of bricks, we would uh, arrange them in such a way that we could lay out new neuro pathways. So as we learn new skills, new words, new languages and stuff, we have a place to actually put them. So up until recently, they were just considered to be glue, you know, in the sense of, well, well they're just sticky stuff that holds all the, the important neurotransmitters together. But in fact, glial cells turn out to be kind of like little battery nutrient bank accounts for what actually happens uh, through the neurons and through the stem to cleft. Uh, as well, um, there's a part of the glial cell that actually functions as the innate immune system of your brain, uh, which is probably a bit too more complicated than we need to get into. But um, if that, that part of the immune system of the brain gets triggered, it can cause all kinds of secondary problems later on, which we'll probably talk about a bit later on. There's an interesting thing about glial cells and um, sort of how your brain actually arranges itself based on what's called your heart torus. Now, the heart torus is basically a bioelectric, biomagnetic field that starts from the center of your heart, right in the middle of your chest, and creates a magnetic field all the way around your body. Right, a torus is uh, toroidal shaped. It's sort of like a donut with a very tiny hole in the middle if there's a hole at all. So in the sense of what that magnet looks like. And um, there's research out there now that suggests that your heart torus, this weird magnet in your heart, <laughs> you know, in the sense of what it looks like, um, is actually responsible for putting the glial cells in the positions that they actually ch end up being in, which actually creates the conditions for how neuro uh, neurons actually end up where they're supposed to end up. So literally, and I love saying this out loud, your heart is your brain. So there's a distinct connection then like between the physical aspects of my body and what actually goes on with the mechanics of my brain. Yeah. And more importantly with the heart torus, it really has to do with mindset attitude and, uh, just overall sense of, you know, joie de vivre or, you know, being in love with life. Cause the, the evidence that they've got, and I guess I should sort of preface this with how we came to this. I think it was about 10, 15 years ago, they came up with this thing in uh, cardiology called radiocardiology, where they would inject into your heart radioactive isotopes so that they could more easily image certain structures and functions of your heart. And uh, the surprising thing happened was they started backing up the imaging device because they were not only noticing the heart, they were starting to notice all these other, you know, weird bits of imaging and stuff. They couldn't figure it out. So they backed it up and then they actually took a picture of this magnetic field from your heart. Hmm. Right. So then they started experimenting on this, you know, looking at different people, different ages, uh, you know, people who meditate a lot and all this other stuff. And they're starting when, you know, people who are like stressed out, damaging their brains from you know, alcohol, sugar, caffeine or whatever, their brain 
is not doing so well and their heart torus is also not doing so well. Whereas you take someone, you know, who is at the same age, whose lifestyle is great, whose attitude is great, whose um, way of dealing with stress is very resilient, same age, maybe even somewhat related or, you know, sense of genetics, and they have a really, really healthy brain and they have a really, really healthy heart torus. So when it comes to brain health, the first thing that I would suggest anyone do is begin meditating or doing Qigong or yoga or something that asks you to become really, really aware of your body, really, really aware of your breath, really, really aware of mindset, and then to apply that in a way through practice to become more and more coherent and present and aware because that's what our brain is for. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's, it's just like the vitamin M meditation, you know. Uh, you have to take it like a vitamin. You have to apply it every day until you really, really know what you're doing. And then you need to apply it consistently to get the benefit for it. So um, it's starting to click in because I have this image in my mind. Um, how, do I, how do I say this? If, um, if what's going on in my head is affected by my heart and my heart is kind of like my mood and my disposition and that kind of stuff, if I've got a uh, crappy disposition or mood or whatever it is um, – ulcers is what comes to mind. Mm -hmm. I think about how my gut affects my personality. Um, like if I've, if I've got, um, you know, some kind of inflammatory gut thing going on, or if I've got gluten intolerance or whatever it is that's going on down there, uh, that makes me unhappy. <laughs> um, an unhappy gut is an unhappy brain is an unhappy heart. I mean, it all sort of seems like it's, it's making more sense to me that these things are all connected. Um, and that makes me think of what you've talked about before about the, the brain and your gut. Mm -hmm. Um, is there like a direct connection between, I don't know, have they taken a picture of the brain and your gut the same way they've taken a picture of the Taurus in your heart? <clears throat> well, I don't think it's uh, related as, as directly, but I would say it's, uh, indirectly related. So when you actually look at the neurological tissue of your gut, um, and it's actually called your second brain because there's um, almost as much neurological tissue in your gut in the sense of neurons and neuropathways as there is in the base of your brain in your entire spinal column. Wow. So your gut brain is actually a brain. Hmm. Um, so there's that aspect of it. And, of course, it needs the same kind of, uh, I don't know, care and feeding as your brain brain. Uh, it's obviously in a much more hostile environment in the sense that it's not contained in this sacred little palace with a blood-brain barrier. So it takes a, more of a beating, but they're definitely directly connected uh, through what's called your vagus nerve. And uh, your vagus nerve basically is called a wandering nerve, and it wanders down from your brain down to just about every organ in your body. So that's, this creates a direct connection between your brain-brain and your gut-brain. And there's a lot of sort of feedback loops that can go on. And in fact, there's a, I mean, this would have to be its own distinct podcast, but there's all these things that can go wrong in your gut when your vagus nerve begins to atrophy because you're basically your gut is damaging your gut and your gut's damaging your brain to the point that uh, your vagus nerve actually ends up in trouble. So that's a pretty direct connection. But I would say more importantly, and this is uh, kind of all the rage right now with uh, modern neurology is uh, there's a system inside your GI tract called the microbiome and the microbiome is basically this huge ecology of microbacteria and other organisms their job is to basically make up 95% of your neurotransmitters uh, they cooperate in the process of making all those neurotransmitters which you need for your gut brain and your brain brain so uh, right now 95% of the potential for your brain to work is in your gut 
Hmm. So that just makes me think that if your brain doesn't work, sorry, your gut doesn't work. I just spilled the beans right there. <laughs> I, I, I give it the punchline. If your gut doesn't work, your brain doesn't work because it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this, this is sort of the point of this particular podcast is anytime you say brain, you really have to recognize you're saying your whole physiology. Hmm. And that just makes me think of other things that we've talked about. Leaky gut, mm-hmm. right? So if I've got a leaky gut, I basically have a hole in my head. Um, well, people with leaky gut sometimes end up with what's, what's called leaky brain. Yeah. And uh, there's a couple of ways that can happen. Um, typically, you have to have a dysbiosis, which is the microbiome being out of whack in the sense of too many of a certain bacteria, not enough of another bacteria. When you have dysbiosis, the sort of war and the the way your food influences the populations and stuff like that can be a little bit all over the map. And you have these fast-feeding bacteria. They chomp on your, you know, cheesecake or whatever. There's a bloom of the bacteria. And then you realize, you know, because maybe you're suddenly getting psoriasis or something, that, oh, I better stop eating cheesecake. And then all those poor little critters no longer have a source of food, so they have to die. And during the death of those bacteria, which is happening all of the time, uh, bacteria secrete something called lipopolysaccharide or LPS. And it's a really hostile kind of molecule, and it has no problem getting through the gut wall into your bloodstream, and it has no problem getting through the blood-brain barrier. So then you have all this LPS in your brain, and that's one of the main things that makes people feel foggy and stuff. And it can also excite that innate immune system in your brain uh, through the glial cells activity, which can cause all kinds of secondary problems, which is, again, pretty complicated. In the normal day-to-day eating and respiration and pooping of bacteria, because they have to poop just like us, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, they secrete a lot of ammonia in in their activity. And again, ammonia is another molecule that can get through your gut wall, into your bloodstream, through the blood-brain barrier. Ouch, my brain hurts. (laughs) Yeah. Not so good. And if you have a lot of yeast in your gut, especially candida and stuff, which is a pretty popular thing in the sense that happening to a lot of people, uh, the yeast produce something called acetaldehyde, uh, which is a molecule that is actually one of the things we take alcohol and turn it into. And of course, now you've got a little still brewing in your gut, producing something that basically behaves like alcohol, getting through the gut membrane into your bloodstream into your brain. So after hearing you talk about gut brain yep. Yep. and heart brain, it just makes me think that my, uh, well, I'm, I'm convinced <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> that it's actually their part of everything else that's going on um, and that it's not so separate from the rest of the body after all. So if you haven't heard of the blood-brain barrier, there is this membrane that surrounds your brain and it's got super, super tiny, tiny little uh, gateways that are, you know, they got big bouncers in front of the door that only allow very specific nutrients and molecules in. Because obviously through evolutionary history of all mammals, protecting your brain from infection and from accidental ingestion of whatever you've eaten is pretty important. So we've evolved this little protective membrane. Um, and we thought it was really, really pretty much bomb-proof in the sense that we knew that only certain things could get in and out. And I think it was in the last year we've discovered this uh, new micro uh, circulation of lymphatic t- tissue that actually reaches through the blood-brain barrier by itself. So now your brain is really no longer as protected as we used to think it was from the rest of your body. And your immune system, or pardon me, your lymphatic system being a big part of your immune system is going to introduce your brain to whatever it is the rest of your immune system is dealing with. So 
And, and that's the reason why we're doing this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was trying to think of what the next step was from that, but it's essentially, um, you know, our health is in integral to our brain health mm -hmm. you know physical and emotional health is integral to whatever's going on in between our ears which is what also affects everything else that's going on in the body you know the knee bone is connected to the leg bone <laughs> the gut bone is connected to the brain bone okay so what's the next connection from your brain to the body so the biggest um i would say um, offender if you will uh of causing changes in the brain due to changes in the rest of the body is your pineal gland so your pineal gland basically sits in the kind of center of your brain, but it actually has as much interaction with your blood vessels and blood supply as your kidneys. So whatever it is your body's dealing with in the sense of environmental toxins, drugs, pharmaceutical drugs, recreational, um, immune system overreactions, uh, other things, uh, your pineal gland basically can't not deal with that stuff because because it has a, such a, a vast vascular uh, interaction with the rest of your body. And although the blood that gets into your pineal gland may not actually get into your brain directly, uh, your pineal gland is going to be communicating with the rest of your brain through hormones and uh, messaging molecules that effectively will run part of your brain, uh, especially around sleep and, and stuff like that, uh, stress physiology, etc. So there's actually something called brain gravel. Um, I think uh, it's a, there's a Latin word for it. It's been around for a long time. And it describes something called uh, pineal gland calcification. And if there's enough inflammation and other stressors in the body, uh, that metabolic stress is actually going to cause scarring and wounding of your pineal gland. And your body uses calcium as kind of a scar tissue uh, thickener, if you will. So what happens is now your pineal gland basically is less and less resilient or less and less available to its actual job, which is, you know, it's like a master hormone in your brain or a master gland in your brain. So it sounds like there's a lot of things that we can actually do to uh, to ruin our brain health um, just by being ourselves. <laughs> yeah, day-to-day -day life, you know. <laughs> well, that's uh, kind of like being up the creek without a paddle, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, so hopefully you have some kind of answer to make sure that that doesn't happen. Well, I mean, step one is just stop eating crap. <laughs> okay. And uh, when you say crap, you mean junk food or caffeine or... Um, well, kind of all of the above. I mean, caffeine's nice because it uh, increases uh, the production of acetylcholine, which makes us feel brighter. But it's not necessarily the best way to do that because eventually when you take a chemical like caffeine that forces your brain and, and your adrenals and a bunch of other stuff to run better, they're basically running on their substrates faster than usual, which means you're going to eventually run out faster unless you're also... Uh, consciously adding in those kind of things in a very practical way. Honestly, the worst thing for your brain is sugar. Doesn't the brain need sugar to run? Well, the brain needs glucose, and the brain can get glucose from all carbohydrate and protein. So you mean refined sugar? Yeah. When I mean sugar, I mean that deathly evil white stuff that seems to be in giant bags and in stores <laughs> okay. or you mean to go to every restaurant on the table almost every restaurant you're going to see those little packets of sugar so i mean they're just constantly inviting people to eat them and i mean i remember um my first bowl of breakfast cereal um this is a, dis a distinct memory you have yeah well i grew up in in the bush we didn't really have stores and stuff right right so, 
So you were a little older. A little older. And I remember just like, you know, I think it was Cheerios or something where I just poured in the, the bowl and then the milk, which has got all kinds of sugar in it. And then I put sugar on top of the sugar. And the most breakfast cereals are just basically brain toxins in the sense that they've been puffed and, um, and you know, that makes them all kind of like crunchy, but. I don't know. It actually produces a neurotoxin when you do that. Like even like puffed rice for rice crackers is going to be a neurotoxin, right? But I just remember sitting there eating bowl after bowl of sugar with sugar with sugar and going, well, this is amazing. I feel so goofy and fun and whatever. And luckily I broke that habit very quickly, but I just imagine all of the children out there that that's a normal morning. And so the idea of uh, crap food, as you said, stop eating crap, uh, refined sugar, um, is that like the worst thing, the only thing that we need to avoid? Well, I mean, there's, uh, I mean, I think I'd, before I get into anything else, I think I'd want to just talk about uh, a little bit more about exactly kind of how sugar is bad. Okay. Um, as most people know, when you eat anything that's high glycemic in the sense that it's going to turn into sugar in your blood quickly, your body has to produce enough insulin to take that glucose and put it away. Having sugar in your bloodstream is really, really bad, mm-hmm. right? So we have this, you know, emergency protocol, get the sugar out of your bloodstream because that's bad for your brain. Um, too much anyway. But what's really bad for your brain is actually the high insulin. So not the sugar itself, but the thing that's responding to the sugar. Yeah. I mean, the sugar itself is just sugar or glucose. Excessive glucose is going to make your brain start having like kind of racing thoughts or something like that uh, just because all of a sudden we have, you know, abundant calories for the brain to play with. Which is, I'm sure, why most people just, you know, I'm three o'clock in the afternoon and I'm a little tired. I'll go eat a donut, you know, or something. <laughs> Candy bar. Yeah. But when you get high blood sugar <clears throat> and then you get the subsequent high insulin, um, basically that changes the physiology of how things move through the blood brain barrier. So if we were to go back to uh, serotonin, uh, you know, tryptophan is actually a really large, odd shaped molecule. It has a hard time getting through the blood brain barrier by itself. And it requires like a, a kind of, uh, it's called a large, uh, protein transporter. It's like a special bus for the special kids. <laughs> and, um, you know, once your brain needs some more tryptophan to make serotonin, uh, it sort of sends out this bus to pick up the, the tryptophan if it can, because it needs that help to get through the blood brain barrier. Now, weirdly enough, uh, when you have high insulin, it makes this bus um, move across the barrier more easily, which is good. It helps tryptophan get out and get through there. But what inevitably happens is uh, when you have more rapid introduction of serotonin to the brain because of the high insulin, now your brain hits this sort of sense that that must be the baseline, right? So I get this much serotonin every day. Mm, and get stuck there. Um, well, you're just used to that much every day. And if you don't have that much every day because you're not having high insulin, because you're fasting or you're eating real food or something like that, you're going to have the symptoms of a lack of serotonin. Even though there's too much. Well, there was too much yesterday, but today you're actually doing better with your diet. So your insulin's lower. So the bus that gets tryptophan in your brain is slower. This is really complicated. Well, a bit, but it's just, it's just to sort of say, you know, that this whole thing is really about how addictive sugar is. Mm-hmm. And how much it screws with things. Yeah. So I'll give you a quick little picture around addiction. <clears throat> so we get this, our Cheerios and sugar for breakfast, get all this tryptophan into your brain, lots of serotonin, you're a happy little monkey. And you're having this, you know, consistent uh, reminder to your brain that you're always going to have this big flood of uh, tryptophan and serotonin every day. 
So if we go back to the little fists in the air representing neurons, so I've got my neuron on one side and I'm going to point out one finger and this finger is just full of serotonin all day, every day. It just keeps throwing it into the synaptic cleft. And so typically you're going to see, so here I've got my two fists and I got my right index finger pointing out and then I got my left index finger you know, representing that it's, it's happily receiving the serotonin, but there's always all this serotonin because of the high sugar and the bus being full of tryptophan and stuff. So what happens is your body starts producing extra neurotransmitters. So here I'm now sitting with my right hand with my right index finger pointing at my left hand, and my left hand now has three fingers pointing at my right. Because why wouldn't it? There's this constant prolific, you know, availability to serotonin. Yay. And then again, this is me trying to explain addiction in a mechanical kind of way. Um, you take away the source of the neurotransmitter, right? And it could be whatever you're addicted to in the sense of the exact uh, chemical. Now you have three uh, fingers to one. So what I'm going to say is my right hand is now a mother bird and my left hand is a bunch of baby birds and they want the worm. And now if I'm baselining my physiology to normal uh, availability to something like tryptophan or serotonin, all of a sudden there's three baby birds screaming, actually be like 300 trillion or something, or well, probably a few billion anyway, little baby birds screaming in your head all day, every day for the worm, which is now back to normal in the sense there's only enough worm, worms or neurotransmitters from for one mama bird and for one baby bird. So when people suddenly stop sugar, stop caffeine, stop alcohol, uh, heroin, ecstasy, whatever it is, um, the screaming billions of baby birds, that's what addiction is and feels like. And those are the things that start to control the show, that actually control people's behaviors to actually start feeding those baby birds, mm -hmm. <laughs> as you see it there. Yeah, and one other thing that happens uh, quickly is when you have high glucose in your body, you end up with a lot more glycation. And glycation is when you start binding sugars and proteins together. And um, that basically causes scarring. And this kind of scarring turns into placking. And then we end up with Alzheimer's disease, which we nowadays call diabetes type 3 because we realize that Alzheimer's is what happens to the human brain when it's being cooked on sugar. So all of this is just making me think that if I'm not to eat crap, uh, I'm supposed to eat good. Hmm. Eating good feeds my gut good, yep. feeds my heart my brain good, right? So that's the kind of track that you're on here, all about nutrition. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the one thing you can see also in the brain was, would just be classical malnutrition, hmm. you know, and that, that would be kind of a complicated thing to get into too many details. But again, you need substrates for all of the neurotransmitters. You need uh, the base uh, fats, cholesterols, uh, choline, all these other things to just actually run uh, the, the base factory of the brain itself. Right. So, um, we've been talking about birds and serotonin and tryptophan <laughs> and, and a whole bunch of different crazy ideas here. Um, and it's making sense in my brain, but for the sake of the listener, can you give us a recap? Uh, yeah. So you want to keep your neurotransmitters happy with lots of, um, uh, neuropeptides, right? So eat really good food and take care of your microbiome so that it, they can produce the right number uh, and quality of, of proteins to turn into the neurotransmitters you need. Uh, obviously, uh, if you're getting into leaky gut, if you're getting into dysbiosis, you're getting into other stuff around the gut, that's going to mess with your brain. So 
be nice to your brain. If you can, you know, look into decalcifying your pineal gland. There's lots of ideas out there on the internet. And I think that covers it just in the sense of introducing people to the structure of the brain and the fact that it's not all alone by itself. It's not this thing floating on top of your head. You know, I think it was interesting when we first have sort of started having this conversation, Anthony, that, you know, for the first 15 minutes, there is this natural kind of hazy, almost stubborn sense of, I'm okay because I'm my brain. So my brain's okay. Mm-hmm. In the sense that, you know, I, I slept last night and I remembered my phone number and where my car keys are and so brain good. But that's not always true. No. No. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, uh, if I, if I, if I can paraphrase just for my, my own sake of understanding here, if, if I'm feeding my gut, uh, the fuel, um, that's proper, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, putting in unleaded gas into my unleaded gas car instead of diesel mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> into my diesel car, if I, if I take the right fuel into my gut, that feeds the driver, uh, of the car in a way, uh, where I actually get decent gas mileage. I actually get, I get where I'm going pretty happy, no bumps in the road, no, um, I'm just using other analogies here mm-hmm. <laughs> for the sake of my own understanding, <laughs> but, uh, nutrition is good. Nutrition is good for the gut, good for the heart, good for the brain. Cause it's all connected. Yeah. I mean, and, and obviously your vascular system, uh, in the sense of what's in your blood, that's going to affect your brain. Right. Uh, what your immune system is doing, that's going to affect your brain. Uh, obviously, what's happening in your heart in the sense of emotion and uh, trauma and stress and everything else, that is also going to have an effect on your brain. Cool. So, yeah, that's that's our that's the point of the podcast is take care of your brain. Yeah, great. All right. So, um, seeing as this is the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast, and mm-hmm. we've been talking about the brain, yep. uh, we've only been talking about one aspect uh, I'm going to call you on that. We've only been talking about nutrition in terms of brain health, maybe a little bit about meditation, but is there more to say about? Well, I mean, I think we kind of touched on lifestyle a little bit in the sense of everything else that's going on, but I would say the most important thing around, uh, the beginning relationship with your brain has got to be mindset. Cause for me, mindset's everything. I mean, without mindset, you're not going to be able to make the distinctions around your diet. Without mindset, you're not going to be able to have the resiliency to maybe change dysfunctional patterns in relationship. You know, without mindset, you're not motivated to maybe spend the extra money on what are called nootropics or things that are really good for the, the health and care and feeding of your brain. Because, I mean, I, know I have this weird expression that uh, your immune system starts with your elbow. Your elbow. Yeah. In the sense that if you can keep your elbow from bending the bad stuff into your mouth and start bending the good stuff into your mouth, your immune system is going to get better. (laughs) So you could just say your brain starts at your elbow in the sense that as long as you're putting the right stuff in, that's going to help. Now that's about nutrition, but your mindset is sort of the metaphor for your elbow in the sense of making the good decisions. And we we had this conversation a few podcasts ago about kind of a martial, martial arts analogy is you know, mindset changes us from being passive people who are just trying to defend ourselves from disease and aging to active warriors or perhaps spiritual warriors who are out there actually making the decisions, the distinctions and, and putting into action the, the choices that are actually can actually make the difference around your health. Mm. Um, you know, as we, as we talk about all this sort of stuff, I am thinking about my own example of improve my gut health and um, how that's affected me, that sort of thing. But I'm curious, do you have any kind of um, obvious examples like from your own clinical practice that you can share? Well, I think the first, the first thing I ask everyone to do when I, I usually ask permission because 
I don't know, it's kind of how it's called informed consent or whatever. I was like, we're going to try something here. So when I usually do like, here's your diagnosis, here's your protocol, whatever. And then I just sort of ask people, so do you feel pretty motivated? You got your mindset together? And they're like, well, um, yeah. Or you can tell that they're like, oh my, this is all crazy bad news. I want to go home and eat all the crap out of my house before I have to stop eating all the crap in my house. As uh, I ask people to just sit with me and get into a really good posture and, you know, balance your head over your ribs, over your pelvis and over your feet if you're standing or over your butt if you're sitting and to start playing with your breath in the sense of breathing in deeply, breathing in uh, with a sense of intention. Because you can, you know, as they uh, sort of a Tibetan practice where you breathe in things that are really, really good and you breathe out things that are really, really bad. And then if you decide to take care of the universe, you breathe in stuff that's really, really bad. And then you turn it into stuff and you breathe it up and make, make it good. You know, just in the sense that now you're actually applying some kind of conscious intention with the active practice of breathing instead of the passive breathing. You know, it's autonomic. The brain's got breathing taken care of. So I'll just, you know, breathe automatically. And I think, you know, most people use like 15, 20% of their actual lung capacity, you know, if they're just slouching in a chair. So it, it, it's sort of a, a physical reminder of what it's like to actually have discernment and perhaps discipline, which is, oh yeah, I'll sit in a good posture, take a few deep breaths and see if I can maybe induce a relaxation response or um, something else. But it's just sort of like that mindset, you know, it's either on or off. Well, when you talk about uh, breathing and mindsets, it just makes me think of, um, you know, if ever I'm stressed out, I just remind myself, you know, take a deep breath, Uh, you know, just like, you know, and it, whatever it is just disappears and that sort of stuff. So that just makes me think that there's got to be more or there's something significant about how, um, I guess, mindset actually deals with the neurological things that are going on in my brain. So this is this next thing I'm going to say. This is usually when I'm, if I'm teaching a meditation class, um, I ask people to imagine and for the listeners and for Anthony, I know, Please follow along with this and use your imagination. So imagine that you are this tiny little person and you're riding a snake. Okay. Right. And this is a kind of the passive experience of meditation where you're just sort of riding the snake and it's going through the jungle and you're looking at all the pretty flowers and the giant cats and all the other interesting things that happen in jungles. And why not? It's kind of cool. You can just sit there and look around at the, the mindscape of your mind. You know, and I think that's a good idea at the beginning to just get a sense of your pers- particular neurosis and, <laughs> you know, or your, your foibles or, you know, where your, your mind is, I don't know, rehearsing conversations that you may never have with people. But once you've had that experience of, okay, so that's me just sort of, you know, riding the snake and, you know, watching the show. And I suggest sort of inching up towards the head of the snake and putting your happy little, I don't know, gnome fingers into the ears of the snake and start steering its head. In the sense of, I think I want to bring my attention and my mindset and my practice in this direction over here. And then over, maybe in that direction over here. So I'm now learning to sort of steer where my mind is going. And then this is a little bit creepy, but cool. Imagine you're laying your, your head right down on the head of the snake. And now your body's going to merge with the snake and your pupils become the pupils of the snake. So now there's no more thought anymore. Because you are just conscious attention moving through space and time, completely free of reflection, you know, or rehearsal or whatever else, because you're now basically just consciousness. And if I am that conscious of my existence, um, 
I probably would have better control over um, all aspects of my health. Well, you'd be doing a lot less thinking. Hmm. And your mind is, it's a useful calculator. It's nice that it remembers phone numbers and grocery lists and people's names and stuff. But as a person is, I oh know, this is my 30, oh God, almost 40 years of meditating. <laughs> um, the difference between my life and what it's like to be inside my skull uh, in periods of my life when I'm stressing out and freaking out about, you know, if it's money relationship whatever, uh, compared to what it's like to be inside my, myself when I'm in my practice and taking care of myself is the difference between that little guy on the snake in the middle of a war zone <laughs> to being the pupils of the snake. Hmm. But you're still on the snake. Um, well, I'm, I become basically consciousness and then I don't need to use reflection and thought and rehearsal to get through whatever I'm experiencing in the moment. Right. So this uh, idea of uh, mindset and things that we're talking about here um, makes me think more of, I guess, the mechanics of how it is that we actually do get sick in the first place. Um, because if I am consciousness and I am more aware of my surroundings and all that sort of stuff, I'm pretty uh, stress-free, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. Um, but I also know how stress can actually weigh on my mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is that it? Like, is stress like one of the root causes of things that actually go on inside my brain? Well, stress, I would say, is going to basically melt your brain. Stress is going to melt my brain. Yeah, and in the next podcast, where we're going to talk about sort of health and illness and, like, actually what actually changes in your brain. Uh, I'm just going to walk people through uh, sort of a step-by-step -step how stress actually basically dissolves your brain. Hmm. And uh, is that all that's on the list? I mean, if there's things out there that it can be sort of um, – uh, I guess the, the, the causes of neurological problems is stress. The only thing, uh, stress is number one. No second to sugar, I guess, <laughs> uh, trauma basically creates really embedded neuro pathways. Um, and if we were to think of like post-traumatic stress disorder and stuff, now your mind has become hardwired to be hypervigilant for consequences and specifically around whatever that trauma was. But for some people it's around any consequence at all. You know, you just become the, the paranoid, uh, uh, I think of sort of like the century of a medieval castle. I mean, your job is to stand there all day, rain or shine, <laughs> looking for what's wrong <laughs> in the, you know, outside of the castle. So when we become that kind of a vigilant person, um, that's all we see is opportunities and especially negative consequences. And, you know, our, when you're in trauma, the whole castle is basically in a state of war. So now your brain's on a war footing, maybe for the rest of your life. So trauma bad. Uh, obviously, I think chronic illness, chronic, um, I don't know, undiagnosed or diagnosed allergies, uh, chronic infections, things like that, because your immune system's, you know, basically in a state of war. Now your brain is basically triggered back to that whole thing. You may not have PTSD, but as far as your brain's concerned, the universe is a very hostile place because it's on fire because your immune system's freaking out. And if you remember at the beginning of the podcast, I was sharing my experience of having these crazy high inflammatory markers and watching my brain just basically disappear in front of me. <laughs> so well, that can happen. That reminds me of the movie, um, the madness of King George, uh, something about, um, uh, I forget if it was lead in mm -hmm. the, uh, whatever pots and pans and things that they were cooking with at the time. But yeah, they, they usually used to use lead, uh, you know, plates and cups and stuff because it was so easy because it's got such a low 
uh, melting point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's got to be something to it, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. I mean, if that's mad as a hatter because hatters use lead to do their felting. So <laughs> lead. I thought it was mercury, but well, mercury. maybe it was mercury. Yeah. Anyways, I'm sure that's on the list. Yeah, mercury bad. Filling's bad. Uh, you know, cooking with aluminum pots bad. Uh, aluminum cans, pop cans, and everything. I mean, they they I mean this funny thing that that it was a lot of containers. They went from uh, you know, we've discovered that aluminum is bad, so we're going to line that aluminum with this kind of plastic, you know, and the plastic has something in it called BPA, which turns out to be just as bad for your brain because it's a, it's called an, uh, xenoestrogen or a, a kind of estrogen looking molecule from outside of your body that gets into your body and changes not only your endocrine system or how your hormones work, but because your brain is dependent on certain hormones to actually function like estrogen. When you get these external estrogens coming in, now your brain's running on fake estrogen. That can't be good. No, that's really bad. Wow. That's actually worse for men than women in some ways because women naturally require a certain amount of estrogen in in abundance because they typically have more. And with men, we need more more testosterone for our brains to work better. Hmm. I'm sure there might be some people out there who disagree with that statement, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We won't. We won't get into that. I want to make this a call-in show at least once in a while, just because <laughs> we can have some fun with people. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, so, metal pots, cans, fillings, all those sorts of things, doing bad for the brain. Uh, please tell me that's the end of the list. Uh, well, like I said, I mean, there's the plastic, you know, in oh, right. terms of the all that stuff that people. I don't know. Everyone's walking around with a plastic water bottle now i'm just like going, oh my god i'm gonna have to clone myself because people are gonna be needing a lot more help really soon <laughs> okay so uh now that i know that there's a uh, a bunch of neurological problems that can arise from me just being me in the world and the world is wrong now what <laughs> <laughs> well uh i think i mean this is true of every health concern uh there's a fundamental theory or tenant and uh protocol, I guess, in Chinese medicine is called Fu Zhong Chu Xie. And Fu Zhong basically means to um, assist the things that help your body resolve problems. Or more, I don't know, useful in English, it helps you build your adaptive resources. You know, in the sense of the physical things and then the mindset things and stuff like that. And then Chu Xie actually kind of literally means to chase out demons or bad juju or something like that. Uh, but I usually just say, you know, let's try and remove as many uh, erosive influences as you can. So when you make a list of everything that can go wrong, and it's something we've covered a pretty good list today, yeah, you want to just start making less of those, uh, you know, a concern for your health by removing them in some way or changing them in some way. And then when it comes to the adaptive resources of your brain, then again, it's all that yummy real food. You know, lots of fat. If you're going to have eggs, keep the yolks soft. Coconut oil is super good for you. Butter is really good for you. Try and get the grass-fed butter. So f- as we go through the the series of uh, podcasts on the brain, I'm just going to get into more and more kind of geek out detail on exactly how to take care of each uh, lobe and structure and function in your brain, just because that'd be fun. And I thought this was the geek out session. Um, well, if this was kind of an overview of what we're going to get into a little bit. <laughs> okay. I think I just gained a few pounds in my, in between my ears, just, <laughs> just with that statement alone. Um, it sounds like, um, 
we're ready to go for another podcast. So we're wrapping this one up. Uh, pretty much. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh, hello, I am your brain. This has been Fusion Health Radio, episode 16. Uh, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And uh, we would love it if you were to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Mm-hmm. You can yeah. find, find it on iTunes. You can find us on Facebook. Yeah, and please leave a review because that's how iTunes knows that what we're doing is working out. Yeah, because that's good for our brain health. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Uh, good conversation today, Michael. Um, I think I'm going to have to listen back to this again for myself just so that I can fully understand more of what you said because it's slowly filtering in. Mm-hmm. I finally get it. And uh, I guess we'll see you in the next podcast. Sounds fun. Yeah, good. Uh, see you next time. All right. Have a great day, everyone. And uh, cook well, eat well, and be well. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.